Thank you, Brother Dan. Last week we covered the blessings of God, and there are certainly many. And tonight we're going to look at the cursings of God. And I guess my question would be, uh, how often do we think about the cursings of God? Hardly ever. In fact, it's kind of a, an eye-opener to realize that these blessings we talked about last week and the cursing we're talking about tonight come from the same God. But as we do a search of the Scriptures, we find out that it is the case. The same God who blesses people is also the same God who curses people. So a couple of questions about God, and help me out here. Uh, first of all, is God light? Is God light? Yes. Is He love? Yes, He's that. Is He holy? Yes. Is God gracious? Yes. We love all those things about God. Is God righteous? Yes. Is He merciful? Yes. And it's interesting, we know that God is all of those things. So my question is, would that kind of God, do you think he would let people get by with ignoring him? No. He can't. He simply can't. And because God is light, love, holy, and all these things we talked about, he does show his disgust of those who stand against him. Now, first of all, it's God's will that all come to repentance. We know that. So it doesn't mean he doesn't offer salvation. But he doesn't let them get by forever rejecting him. And so what he does, he reacts with his judgment upon the wicked. And he does it just as sure as he blesses the faithful. So on the one hand, we have God who blesses. The other hand, the God who curses. And so God does show his approval on those who are pleasing in his sight. In fact, we know, and well, let me ask you this question. Uh, how long will heaven last? <laughs> Forever. It's eternal. What about hell? Forever. And it, it's interesting these are certainly inevitable and an ultimate pair of opposites. And as sure as there's a heaven, there's what? There's a hell. We have to understand that. There is, as sure as there's a heaven, there is a hell. Complete opposites. I find it kind of interesting that we see this awesome dichotomy displayed even in the natural world. And we think of the world that God created and the things that we enjoy in our world. Uh, we see the golden sunsets, and who doesn't like to see those? We uh, see the gardens as they flower, uh, the trees bud out in the springtime. Uh, we see the gentle showers when it's needed. Uh, we see the fields blossom and bloom uh, with grain and all those things. And what a wonderful sight that is. And it brings pleasure to our lives. And yet, we're shocked. And we're horrified in the aftermath of a tornado. We are shocked and horrified in the aftermath of a flood. Jeremy and I went down again this past week, uh, last week uh, to uh, eastern Kentucky. And that was back in August when that happened. And there's still evidence, evidences of what destruction came during that time. And so we see that dichotomy between the things we, we see and we enjoy seeing, but the horror of the other things uh, from these disasters, these devastating things in our world. Romans chapter 11, look at verse 22. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Uh, thank you, Dan. Just to give you a little bit of context here, uh, Paul is addressing the fact that the Jews, because of their disobedience to God, have been cut off. And, of course, the Gentiles have been grafted in. And Paul reminds us, uh, not only is God good, he's also severe. Now, in other words, it would be harshness. Behold 
the goodness and the harshness of God. Behold, the goodness and severity of God. So, God is good. There's no doubt about that. But can God be harsh? Absolutely. And Paul said we have to understand that. Deuteronomy 27. Look at verses 11 through 13. Thank you, Alan. Uh, I love it when you, when you folks volunteer. I practice before I come, okay? But Alan, you did an excellent job with, all, with those names. Do you, do you remember, and I know we're just, we're just picking it out of context here to, to some degree, but do you remember what's going on here in the history of Israel, what's about to happen? They're about ready to go in the promised land. A land that God said was flowing with milk and honey. A land that God had promised years ago to Abraham. And God had warned them. He had warned them, be careful how you live. He warned them, you're going to enter a land where you and live in houses you didn't build. Uh, you're going to drink from wells you didn't dig. Uh, you are going to enjoy blessings of things that you didn't provide for yourself. And the warning God gave them, be careful. It's interesting, he was very clear in his instructions. He was very clear in his warning. And, and basically, of course, Moses is speaking before they go in. And he names two mountains. One's a mountain of blessing, and the other is a mountain of cursing. And the nation of Israel is divided up six tribes each. We're not told exactly why, you know, which group is which, for whatever reason. But the bottom line was, on the mountain of blessing, God says, if you obey me and you do this, I will bless you. Now, there's a whole list of things he does, he says there. But also, there's also a, a mountain of cursing. And God warns them, if you do these things against me, if you disobey me, and again, there's a litany of things he says there, God says, then I will curse you. If you obey me and you're obedient to me, I will make you the head and not the tail. But if you don't, you are in trouble. So we have a God who pronounces blessings if they obey, but if they disobey, what's he pronounce? Cursings. God is going to bring Harshened upon them. Now, what's interesting, you can't have one without the other. A God who blesses is also the God who brings curses. Now, make sure you understand, God does not delight in cursing people. He delights in blessing. But he gives us what we deserve, okay? Well, he gives us what we earn. I'm glad he didn't give me what I deserve. So it's interesting, we think about the division in our world today, and especially even in the era, the age we live in, and we, we talk about different classes of people. But the bottom line is, folks, there's only two classes of people, those with Christ and those without Christ. Because at the end, at the end of time, at the end and the last day, the only thing that's going to make a difference are those who are with Christ are those who are without Christ. In fact, Jesus referred to them as sheep and goats. Two classes of people. In Matthew 25, verse 34, look what Jesus said to the sheep. So what did God, what did Jesus say to the sheep? Yeah, I'll be, I'm, I'm going to bless you. Because you are mine, I am going to bless you. Now again, those are on his right hand. But then look what he says to the goats down in verse 41, Matthew 25. Again, two classes of people, either with Christ or without Christ. Those who are with Christ as sheep are going to be blessed. Those who are the goats outside of Christ are going to be cursed. Now, by the way, 
Once that day comes, how long is that going to last? Forever. For eternity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Somebody read that one, please. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Notice this next phrase. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Now, you know the story of creation, how God planted the perfect garden, placed man in it, and all man had to do was take care of it. God provided everything he needed. And one of the consequences of Adam's sin, it was a part of divine vengeance. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Because of what you did. Now, first of all, when you compare God's ways to our ways, how do they compare? They don't. His ways are past finding out. And no matter how much we try to think about this or try to figure it out, we can't cross every T, we'll never dot every I. God is unfathomable. But one thing we do know that Adam, being the first man, he stood as a covenant head, and he was a legal representative of humanity. And the judgment that came upon Adam, we all share that judgment. We all share that judgment. Has anybody felt the effects of that? Amen. We all have. He would be considered, Adam was, the vice regent of God in this picture. God had given dominion over all things in the garden. And when he fell, you could see the effects of that fall everywhere you looked. And we still see it today. What had once been a pleasure for Adam became what? A burden. The very ground on which he walked... God said, that because of you, it is now cursed. Now remember, remember, who blessed them by putting them in the garden? God did. But who cursed them? Again, the blessings and cursings of God. And because now the ground was cursed, from that point on, God said, it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And now... Adam and the rest of humanity are going to have to toil for their daily daily bread and they're going to earn it by the sweat of their face. Did you ever say to yourself, oh Adam, (laughs) but the truth of the matter, we're all guilty. But again, God cursed because what Adam did. Now I gave up gardening a long time ago. Uh, don't you? Okay, because I still like fresh tomatoes and things like that. But uh, I never had much luck with gardening because I didn't mind planting it, but I didn't want to take care of the weeds. And no matter how you try, guess what your garden gets? Weeds. And if you like, if your garden's like mine, my weeds always grew better than the, than the plant I put in did. And a lot of times they'd overtake it. Of course, we know how that how that goes. So every time you plant a garden. Every time the farmer, of course, now they have, you know, uh, sprays, things they do to help keep weeds out. But the bottom line is simply the fact of the matter. When you see a weed or a thorn or a thistle, what caused that? The curse of God on the ground. So we're reminded over and over again. Every time we see that, we see proof of God's divine sentence he pronounced in Genesis 3. And evidence every day that we are part of a fallen 
race because Adam disobeyed God. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. Okay, thank you, Dan. Now, before we move on, and we're going to make a comment here in, in a moment on that. Of course, Jeremiah is writing just before the exile. And uh, in the time of Jeremiah, uh, Israel, uh, the Judah in particular, uh, decided, you know what, we're going to call on Egypt for help. We're going to trust another nation to help us. And so they were relying, if you will, uh, on another people. Okay, Proverbs 28, 26. Anybody got that one? What is that telling us? Yeah. Now, now think about this. Now, I mentioned in Jeremiah, you know, God was speaking, of course, and he was cursing them, people, because you're putting a trust in Egypt, in another man. And a proverb reminds us, if you trust your own heart, you're a fool. Now, let me make sure you understand something. If we can't trust ourselves, who can we trust? God, but what about anybody else? No. Because they are no different than we are. I think it was John MacArthur that I was listening to today, and he was talking about rejoicing in the Lord. And he said, can you imagine somebody come up and say, rejoice? And you and you say, didn't you hear what I said, rejoice, or something like that? And, and he said, but the key is it's in the Lord. And even John MacArthur, he said, I, I have to admit, I can't rejoice in myself because I don't like what I see in myself. But I can always rejoice in God. And folks, we're no different than anybody else. If we can't trust in ourselves, we can't trust them. So therefore, we must trust in God. So again, the warning of Jeremiah was to God's people, the Jews. And, and we would think that the warning was, uh, is unnecessary. That God's people would know better. But what's the truth? We don't. And we don't. They don't. They didn't. And we don't. I mean, isn't it true? Shouldn't we know ourselves good enough? Shouldn't we understand how we're always changing? Shouldn't we understand how uh, unreliable we can be at time to time? Shouldn't we not know that when we trust in ourselves, in our own heart, we're nothing better than a fool? But we can't trust in God. We can Trust in God. And so if we can't even trust in ourselves, why should we even begin to think that any other human being is more stable than we are, are more dependable than we are? And one thing we can write down today, folks, the arm of the flesh, meaning the strength of the flesh, will always fail you. Always. <laughs> and you take the best of humanity. The best of Adam's race. When we're left to ourselves, guess what? We're in trouble. We are in trouble. Fickleness, weakness, that's humanity. Psalm 62, verse 9. Wow. Now, now, wait a minute here. Now, Dan, I heard what you just said, and I, and I read it today. The psalm was talking about men of low degree and men of high degree. Men on low on the social ladder, up on the social ladder. At the end of the day, what's the difference in them? None. None. I mean, lay them on the balance. Lay them on the scale. And they are together. They're lighter than emptiness. They're both empty. And here's what we need to realize. For us, for God's people at any age, but us as well, to seek the support 
or the protection of man, I think it's a smack in the face of God. Reading a few weeks ago in Chronicles, and the name of the king slipped my mind right now, but his, he was sick. And he went to a false prophet to find out what he was going to recover. And God's man in, intercepted that prophet. And you tell him, he's not going to recover, he's going to die. Because he didn't seek a man of God. So we can't rely on anyone but God. And to find support or help anywhere else is disrespectful to God. Second Chronicles 32 verse 8. You may got that verse. Thank you, Jason. This is the time, of course, in Judah toward the end of their, before they went into captivity, put it that way, to the end of their sovereignty as a nation. Sennacherib, Sennacherib had come against Jerusalem, began taunting the people there. Sennacherib said, we have beat this, we have defeated this people and these people, and if their God couldn't save them, what makes you think your God can save you? And Hezekiah came to them and said, look, they've got strength with them, but it's only man. They get the strength, the arm of the flesh. But Hezekiah said, the difference is, we've got God. Is that a difference? It's a major difference. We have got God. And I like the last part of verse 8. The Bible says, they rested. They put confidence in what Hezekiah had told them. Matthew 26, verse 41, you'll recognize the verse. What's the problem with the flesh? It's weak. We can't trust our flesh. We can't rely upon man. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 3. Romans 8, verse 3. Thank you, Alan. Um, what the law could not do. Was the law weak? What, well, let me ask you this. What was wrong with the law? Okay, but what was whose fault was that? That was our fault. The law itself was perfect. Now we read from Chronicles, from what Jesus said in Matthew, what Paul writes in Romans 8.3. We'll come back to that in a moment here. But all these kind of verses remind us of how foolish it is to lean upon anyone but God. And yet, if you're like me, from time to time, we're guilty of that. And I want to say, the fact that we tend to rely on someone else, I think it's part of the curse. It's a curse that is hard to break away from. How many times have we tried to convince ourselves, just trust God? And we say we do, but the truth is what? We don't. We don't. And especially as Christians, we need to remove this part of the curse. We need to be in prayer about it, that God would deliver us from the temptation of trusting in our own self, 
are trusting in man for help or relief. Now, back to Romans 8.3. Paul said what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And one thing we cannot miss, and it's almost indirectly here, but it's very powerful. Romans 8.3 is one of those great verses that proves that Jesus Christ was more than a man. Was he man? Yes. But he was more than a man. Because Romans 8.3 calls down, it calls down a divine curse for the one who puts his trust in man for any kind of temporary advantage. But also understand, notice this. God sent his own son, verse 8, verse 3 of Romans 8, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And Christ condemned sin in the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem was our weakness. The weakness of our flesh. We could never fulfill the demands of the law. Now remember, God became what? He became flesh. Was Jesus Christ human? Yes. Was he only human? No. He was fully God, fully man. And Jesus did what we could never do. He fulfilled the demands of the law. Malachi chapter 2, look at verse 2. Okay, again, now this is probably 100 years after the end of the captivity. And uh, for the most part, things had, got, had not gotten any better for the nation of Israel. They were still disobeying God. The only thing that had really changed, for the most part, they would no longer get involved in idolatry. But other than that, they were still, for the most part, disobedient against God. And here, God gives them a warning. So they understand that if you don't change your ways, I'll even curse your blessings. I will curse your blessings. In fact, he says, I've already began to do that because you haven't been taking me seriously. The same God who blesses also does what? He curses. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 11. So what's God say about himself basically here? What's he saying? How many know that God is jealous of his honor? How many know that God will never share his glory with another? That's the biblical truth, folks. And anyone who does not take that fact seriously, without a doubt, are going to suffer the divine wrath of God. God is jealous over himself. Now, it's interesting, though, and again, here in Malachi chapter 2, God was speaking to the priest of Israel in particular there. And the prophet was calling out the priest for their sins. And so he says, now look. If you don't take seriously, if you don't listen carefully to the warning, to my warnings, if you don't glorify God by your repentance, if you don't glorify God by reformation of your conduct, 
God says, I will bring a blight even on your temporary blessings. Now I want to tell you something, folks. Wouldn't you agree it's a tremendous blessing to be saved? Amen. And I consider it a tremendous blessing to be called to minister publicly in the name of the Lord. But please understand something. Those who are called by God to minister will suffer awful consequences if they don't honor the God who called them. And this call of God in our lives, if it's neglected, if it's ignored, it will bring about very serious consequences. And God said to the priest in Malachi's day, I'll even curse your blessings. And the problem is a lot of times when people begin to ignore God, even those in ministry or anyone in Christian service, they are given up to the blindness of their minds. Their conscience becomes seared. Their hearts become hard. And they're not where they ought to be with God. But also understand this same principle of this curse we're talking about has a, a broader scope, if you will, and applies to those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and a nation who has been blessed with the light of the gospel. God is going to hold us accountable. Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 8. Thank you, Dan. That's interesting. Paul, of course, is refuting those who are trying to mix the law with grace, saying that faith in Christ alone is not enough. And Paul is denouncing what they're preaching. In fact, he denounces any perversion of the gospel of Christ. And Paul says to them, I don't care who it is, even if it's an angel from heaven, if they preach another gospel than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and faith in that alone, Paul said, let that person be what? Cursed. Let them be cursed. Don't you like the way Paul beat around the bush? Huh? Now think about that. Notice his strong words here. And the reason he uses this strong language is because Paul realizes, I am dealing with a life and death issue here. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I don't care. Even if it's an angel from heaven. And they come preaching another message. Paul said, that angel needs to be accursed. And the implication is forever. For eternity. Doomed to destruction. Also understand, how many know Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light? And by the way, the word messenger, I mean, the word angel just means messenger. And Satan can do that. And I think another implication here is, if you think that angel came from heaven, and that angel is preaching another gospel, guess where he didn't come from? He didn't come from heaven. He did not come from heaven, no matter what it looks like. So not, a, it's only God, not, not only is God jealous of his glory, not only is God jealous of his honor, God is very jealous of his gospel. And verses like this in Galatians should warn us as Christians of the serious responsibility 
to preserve the purity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so I had to ask myself, well, why is God so jealous over the gospel? Why? Well, my question would be then, how many ways to heaven are there? Just one. How many gospels are there? Just one. And so, the gospel of God, the good news of God, makes known the only true way of salvation. Do what now? Didn't have what now? I don't think so, do you? Yeah. <laughs> Are you being sarcastic? Yeah. We can't. It is not there. And I don't know, Jason, maybe you heard it too, but I think it was Alistair Begg addressed this subject this week. If you ask most people in the world, generally, they would say to us, all major religions are basically the same. That's what I want you to believe. Is that true, Jason? No. Jesus Christ is a difference. And folks, God knows. Now, first of all, God is jealous for the gospel because he knows that's the only way people make it to heaven. And if anybody preaches another gospel, and maybe even, not the preaching being well-meaning, but those who hear it really want to go, if they believe a lie, are they going to go? No. So not everybody is on the same page. So again, because the gospel of God is the only true way of salvation, and any time it's corrupted, it certainly dishonors God, but also it is dangerous and disastrous to the souls of humanity. Because, folks, there is only one gospel. And either you're in Christ or you're outside of Christ. Now, it's interesting, and again, Paul doesn't miss words here. He's very clear, very direct. And he was sort of censuring, if you will, uh, those who were repeating an impossible mixture of law and grace. It just can't happen. You just can't be saved that way. Those who were insisting uh, that circumcision had to be followed, those who insisted uh, compliance of the ceremonial uh, rules of Judaism, they were insisting that they were just as necessary as faith in Christ for justification. Folks, that is a lie of the devil. The only thing necessary for justification is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ plus what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing else. I had to smile today. I was listening to John MacArthur. And uh, I'm trying to think where he was preaching. I only caught a little bit of the broadcast. I was driving. But anyway, uh, Paul is speaking about uh, a true yoke fellow. And uh, probably preaching from Timothy. And he's probably speaking about Tychius, if you will. But anyhow, when he calls him a true yoke fellow, he doesn't really name him. And so John MacArthur, you know, deep Bible scholar, he said, I thought about this and some possibilities. He said, first of all, understand, it wasn't like Paul forgot his name. Because Paul was writing under divine inspiration. He didn't forget his name. He's simply trying to make a point of anybody who is really serving God. And here in Galatians, Paul is not just being overzealous. He's not beside himself as he was once accused of by Felix. Because interesting, he's he going to repeat the same thing in the, in the following verse. But Paul says, look, I am not going to allow 
this false gospel to permeate the church. I am going to stand against it. I'm going to remain uh, in fidelity to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says to preach any of the gospel is an insult to the Savior, but also it would prove to be fatal to anybody who embraced that false gospel. Now hold on. Those who receive the gospel are blessed. Those who do not receive the gospel will instantly be what? Cursed. Cursed. There's only one foundation of a sinner's hope. And that's the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. His finished work of redemption on Calvary. And if you add anything to that, if you say the gospel plus this, you are headed for eternal destruction. God is jealous over the gospel. And Paul says for anyone, anyone to teach men to do that, to embrace another gospel, they are cursed by God. And folks, we ought to abhor those kind of people. Well, we ought to detest those kind of people. Galatians 3, look at verse 10. Okay. Wow. Suppose then I get the idea that I can be saved by doing good. I can be saved by a good performance. What does Paul say about that? Can't do it. You're cursed. You're cursed. If you rely on your own obedience for acceptance by God, Paul says we are cursed. We are under the curse of God's law. And because of that, if we don't come to Christ, we will be exposed to the wrath of God. Because the folks, the thing is, we cannot perform well enough Long enough. Now keep in mind. Well, let me ask you a question. Other than Jesus Christ now, other than Jesus Christ, who was able to keep the law 100% of the time? Nobody. You know why? It is utterly impossible for any fallen creature That includes you, that includes me, anyone who's ever lived on this earth. And the reason is, God's law requires flawless, perpetual conformity. Now think about that. God's law requires sinless perfection in our thoughts, in our words, In our deeds. And it's interesting. Did God ever say thou shalt not kill except when? Thou shalt not lie unless this happens? Read God's law. Read his word. And God's law makes no provision for failure to comply with his Holy, righteous demands. None whatsoever. Well, wait a minute, preacher. I've memorized the Ten Commandments. I've read the Bible through over and over again. Does knowing the law save us? No. So it's not enough to hear about and to know about those requirements. If we're going to be justified by them, they all must be 
met. In fact, the Bible says if we're guilty in one point of the law, guess what? We're guilty in all of them. We are guilty in all of them. So now we've got a law. We had that law, God's law. And it's obvious the law already condemns. The law cannot justify. It wasn't meant to justify. It can't justify anyone who hope to earn God's favor is by what we do on our own. It simply can't happen. And the 10th verse of Galatians 3 is made to show us that we are under divine condemnation. And we need to run to Christ. We must flee to Christ. Galatians 3.13. I read that verse this afternoon and I began to weep. Christ became a curse for me. I take that personally. (laughs) And here in verse 13, Paul, if you will, summarizes in one sentence, a brief sentence, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The curse has been born for all of those who believe. Christ took our curse. That curse was placed on Jesus Christ. And I want to say amazing grace. Placed on Christ on my behalf. What matchless mercy Jesus took it for me. And the great news is anyone and everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, we are delivered, if you will, from the law's sentence of doom And we will never fall under that again. Why? Because Jesus became a curse for us. The very one, the sinless, perfect Son of God, stood in our place that the law can no longer condemn us. All of our sins have been imputed to him. And hold on, folks. Christ made himself answerable for our sins. Galatians 4 4. Again, notice this God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman, he was also born under. The law. And because he was human, he voluntarily subjected himself to the structured universe that he himself had created. That universe that had been marred by human rebellion. But I think even more significantly, Jesus lived as a Jew. He subjected himself to God's revealed law. And we know from scriptures, because of that, he was circumcised and presented at the temple. But the great news is, this one born of a woman, born under the law, and while no other human being ever, before that time, had been able to perfectly fulfill God's law, guess who did? Jesus did. He fulfilled it. Completely. Now hold on. He was born under the law. So in a a matter of speaking, the law found him. And the law charged him with the same, cursed him, and demanded satisfaction. And Jesus fulfilled the law. Romans 8.32 He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also 
freely give us all things. Zechariah 13, 7. Anybody got that one? Notice what Paul talked about. God in spare his own son. Zechariah talks about a shepherd being smitten with a sword. And the bottom line was Christ was dealt accordingly by the supreme judge. By the supreme judge of the universe. God didn't even spare his own son. But he called upon the sword of justice to smite the shepherd. And here's what amazes me. By his own consent, the Lord Jesus was made a curse by God himself. All because he paid the ransom price for the redeemed. Delivered us from God's wrath. Delivered us from God's curse. And inducted us into his blessing. Hebrews 6, verse 7 and 8. Hebrews 6, verse 7 and 8. So are every, is everyone, everyone going to be blessed at the end? No. What a contrast between verse 7 and 8. The one received blessings from God, and the other was near to cursing. They were about to meet with divine judgment. Blessing and cursing of God. How many are glad you're on God's side tonight? Amen. You've been born again. Oh, let's stop there tonight and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Sister Phyllis called just before church. Uh, they had company in.